I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The FT. Welcome back to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. On the podcast this week, BP, the new chief executive, Bob Dudley, has shaken up the company's exploration and production division and also set up a new safety division. We look at what the Deepwater Horizon spill will mean for U.S. energy legislation going forward and for the U.S. industry as a whole. Iraq on Monday upped its oil reserves for the first time since the fall of Saddam Hussein. We talk about whether this is a move to position itself within OPEC. And finally, we look at BHP Billiton, As hopes fade for a white knight for Potash Corporation, will the company win the day? I'm joined in the studio by William McNamara, the FT's mining correspondent, and Javier Blas, our commodities editor. Sheila McNulty, our US energy correspondent, will be joining us on the line from Houston, and we have a special guest calling in, Dr. Joseph Mason, Chair of Banking at Louisiana State University. Welcome. So let, let's start uh, today with BP. As, as usual, the company's got a new chief executive in place, Bob Dudley, who started last week. He's, he's already announced quite a few changes. He's splitting the exploration production unit into three, and he's revamping the safety division. Um, we, we thought in the back of that, it's a good time to take a look at the direction of U.S. energy legislation. And I'm now joined by Dr. Dr. Joseph Mason and Sheila in Houston. Um, welcome, Dr. Mason. I just wondered um, if we could have a look, look at what's been going on in the Gulf since the oil spill in April. Um, you, you've looked at the economic costs of the moratorium that was announced by the White House on offshore oil and gas exploration um, at the time. I just wondered, what, do you have, what have you estimated what those costs are, uh, both for the Gulf region and also just for, for U.S. economic activity nationwide? Well, in fact, very little has been going on in the Gulf uh, in terms of exploration and development through this moratorium, not only in deep water, which was the direct target of the moratorium and the subject of my economic study, but shallow water as well. Uh, From my estimates of just the effects of the deep water moratorium, just the moratorium as written, I estimated the loss of uh, 8,000 jobs in the region, about 12,000 jobs nationally uh, for the duration of the moratorium. Right now, it looks like the moratorium may be, in fact, officially lifted, Uh, could very well happen for political purposes prior to the election, but it is very doubtful given the way that policy is going with respect to shallow water operations and also the way that the new regulator, the BOEM, is setting up. It looks highly doubtful that any drilling operations will resume anytime soon. What have have a lot of the companies done uh, since the moratorium took effect? Have they been sort of pulling out rigs out of the the Gulf and and employed them somewhere else, or have they just been sort of sitting there waiting to see what happens? Because it's quite a costly exercise, isn't it, having a sort of rig sitting there doing nothing? Right. It's a costly exercise to have a rig sitting there doing nothing. On the other hand, the costs of moving that rig are quite high. So, so far, the industry has taken the administration at their word, thought that production will probably come back sometime around the end of the moratorium. As those hopes are fading, however, the likelihood of such movements rises. 
the same can be said for employment. Uh, of course, wise firms will try to keep their best employees, uh, redirect their efforts toward maintenance or other tasks that can take up the time in the moratorium while the government sort of gets its act together. Um, again, those contracts could be running out fairly soon as companies realize that far from being just a, a six-month moratorium with a hard end, now they're up against uh, Capitol Hill, uh, regulator reluctant to see any drilling going forward, and really an open-ended threat to decrease, substantially decrease drilling activity for the foreseeable future. Well, is the big fear permitting in the Gulf? Is is that what they expect is going to slow things down? Well, that has already slowed down shallow water operations, certainly. There's no denying that, although the administration has remained reluctant to address this topic and has treated it as something completely different than the moratorium, unrelated and not even really acknowledge this lack of permitting in shallow water. But uh, with the staff choices that are being set up at BOEM, it looks like that same permitting policy will be followed with shallow water. So we could very well, and the most likely expectation is, that we'll get a situation where there's no more moratorium. The administration can kind of declare victory before Election Day, uh, but we just don't see any drilling, certainly uh, before Election Day, not even before November 30th, the end of the scheduled moratorium or even perhaps by the end of 2011. Is there also going to be any consequences for U.S. energy legislation on the back of the spill? Well, probably not the type of uh, carbon legislation and cap-and-trade type of legislation that was envisioned by the administration early on. Uh, that's mired in a number of what I see as, as very reasonable debates. Uh, I wrote a paper several years ago outlining the inherent difficulties of cap-and-trade and likening those to a situation even worse than central banking, where we're trying to control a, the value of a fiat contract through some type of interventionist trading policy. Uh, very difficult to do, and, and nigh near impossible, as we're seeing by some of the experiences elsewhere in the world. But uh, while that legislation appears dead, it doesn't mean that there won't be legislation, perhaps not energy legislation, that will punish the industry. Uh, we are seeing tax proposals to uh, remove tax credits from the oil and gas industry that are shared across the entirety of the U.S. economy. Uh, singling out the oil and gas industry for the removal of these. Uh, it's important to remember uh, these are not subsidies to the oil and gas industry. If they're subsidies at all, they're subsidies to all U.S. businesses uh, that are only being removed for oil and gas. Um, so that's a, a sticky thing to try to explain to most people. They tend to think that oil and gas is a heavily subsidized industry in the U.S., uh, I still challenge them to point to me the, the list of specific targeted subsidies to that industry. Uh, it's very tough to pick those out in reality, and any subsidies that um, may appear uh, even uh, at first glance are usually offset by substantial safety regulations and other very high costs of doing business which, interestingly, aren't shared throughout the world. We do pay for our safety of U.S. oil. Uh, the spill notwithstanding, the U.S. is still one of the most environmentally safe places to drill, and it strikes me that by pushing activity offshore, 
we harm the world environment, the global environment, even further. And, and Sheila, I just wondered, from your point of view, since you're sitting in Houston, which is where all the um, oil companies have got their exploration um, divisions based, I just wonder what, what's the mood like at the moment um, within the industry? I think people are quite disappointed. The fear is that um, the moratorium uh, is going to be lifted, but still there won't be activity. And so they feel like they did take the administration at its word and they did wait out the six months or almost the six months. And um, and they've done a number of things to try to prove that they can operate safely in the Gulf. And yet the new regulations are quite stiff, um, probably well justified, but it's just a big change for the industry. And people are quite disappointed that this is going to hold back development for much longer than anybody originally anticipated. And are you just on, on that, are you also seeing a lot of the sort of medium-sized players already sort of deciding to exit the Gulf because they can't afford um, to operate there, given the sort of increased costs and also the potential costs um, of, of, of a spill if they, do have a, if they do have one? You know, there's been a lot of talk about that, and I think it's still at the behind-the-scenes stage. A lot of companies are reluctant to pull out because it's such a good uh, resource base, but I think the writing is on the wall that only the biggest um, or, or some of the mid-to-big-sized to operators are going to be able to continue to operate out there. So um, I think it's just a matter of time before we start to see some of these announcements. But to date, we really haven't seen them. I think the contracts are still in place, and some of them just decide to wait through the contract and see how things went. But now that the time is approaching, it looks like uh, real hard decisions are going to have to be made. Thanks very much um, to Sheila McNulty, our U.S. Energy Correspondent in Houston, and also Dr. Joseph Mason in Louisiana. Thanks a lot. Now, oil in Iraq, the country holds some of the largest oil reserves in the world and is one of the first members of OPEC, but Iraqi oil production has not been included in any OPEC quota agreements for over a decade. Javier Blas, a commodities editor, is with us. Um, now, Javier, I just wondered what you could tell us what happened on Monday. The country obviously increased its reserves by about a quarter, I think, if I've got that right. Um, was it a surprise? It was not a surprise because we, for a long time we have suspected that Iraq has more reserves than you know, we, we knew until now. And obviously they're going to need to do a lot of work to translate those reserves into actual production. The number is a bit shocking because it's a 25% increase uh, that it came almost out of the blue. I mean, we were expecting an increase, but I don't think that anyone was expecting such a big increase. They positioned themselves as the second, within the OPEC group, they positioned themselves as the second largest uh, behind Saudi Arabia and above Iran. And that just, uh, it is the most interesting politics within the group. Right. So just in terms of what are they saying, why they've done the increase? Is it because they've, I don't know, reread some seismic or re-drilled some fields? You know, what are the reasons behind that? Well, they claim that some of the fields that they already know that they are in place, uh, they were previously not included on the on the, the official numbers, official numbers that they have not changed for many, many years. Obviously, Iraq is still an underexplored country for many years has been subject to wars and sanctions, and so there were not a chance for international oil companies to go there. And also it reflects the, the initial war of the international oil companies that they're going to be helping Baghdad to increase their production over the next few years. So it's a combination of we have not moved the number for more than uh, 10, uh, I think it's close to 20 years, and also we have new data, seismic data in particular, that suggests that our results are much greater than we previously have said. Because most of the international oil companies they're out there now. The, the company, the country's had two licensing rounds, haven't they? Um, and, and the likes of BP are out there. Shell is in there drilling. Um, 
again, is, is, is there a lot of investment going in? It is a lot of investment going into the country. But, you know, you, you could look even the small investment uh, on, the, on the far north of the country, in the Kurdistan. Uh, it's, a can, it's an area of the country that previously have officially no reserve whatsoever. However, we have several international oil companies who are operating already and producing there, and they have discovered oil. So for sure, there is oil there that it was not included on the numbers. Obviously, we have the Chinese and we have the international, the Western companies in the south of the country that is the most prolific area of the country who are making reappraisals of how much the oil fields uh, hold in terms of oil reserves. But uh, we have to make a, a, a very strong emphasis here that the country has lots of reserves doesn't mean that automatically it's going to have a lot of production. The capacity is there, but you know there is a lot of work to do to translate reserves into actual production. And just the timing of, of this announcement, I think we've got an OPEC meeting coming up in Vienna next week. Um, again, do, do you think that it was sort of deliberately timed ahead of the meeting? OPEC? More than just the ahead of this meeting, that is more a short term. I think that there are two things here important to read in terms of the OPEC politics. One is that this announcement is coming as OPEC celebrates its 50th anniversary. And, and obviously OPEC was created in Baghdad in, in the 14th of September of 1960. Uh, um, I think that Baghdad or Iraq government wanted to have a meeting in Iraq to celebrate this anniversary. It was a lot of opposition for the other OPEC members to go to Iraq because security concerns. So at the end of the day, they decided not to have at all a meeting to celebrate the anniversary. And I think that this announcement of the reserves was timed to coincide with that, that meeting in Baghdad that at the end of the day didn't happen. More long term, uh, reserves is a, is a basic data for OPEC politics because it helps to determine which quota, which official limit of production a country within OPEC has. And obviously with this 25% increase, Baghdad is sending a pretty strong message to the rest of OPEC members, but particularly to Iran. That is, when our infrastructure recovers, we would like to produce a lot more than we have used to. And because we have more reserves than Iran, we should also have a bigger uh, production level than Iran. Okay, well, we will, we'll be watching that very closely, obviously, over, over the coming weeks and months. Um, let's 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 kick off now with BHP. Um, I mean, the deal's been rumbling on for a while. The company um, made an unsolicited bid for Potash Corporation um, in, in Canada. How many weeks ago, Will? Seven. Seven weeks ago. Um, the company, or Potash, has been looking for a white knight, um, or sort of scouring the world, I think, uh, looking for a white knight. I just <clears> wondered if you could bring us up to date as to who they've been talking to and how successful those talks have been. Well, uh, insofar as there have been any talks, uh, they do not seem to have been uh, successful in terms of actually bringing forward a white knight. Uh, the, the, the company on everyone's lips... Uh, is Sinochem, uh, a state-owned Chinese uh, uh, fertilizers and chemicals company. Um, there, there, there was no uh, s- sort of great objective logic to um, thinking that Sinochem would be a white knight other than it as a state-owned Chinese corporation that has potentially access to uh, 40 or $41 billion in cash that could uh, trump BHP's bid. And, of course, the um, you know the sort of perennial logic that China needs just about every sort of raw materials and wants security of supply. Um, the, 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 this has been the sort of uh, logic that's underpinned expectations that Sinochem will come forward. And it simply has been seven weeks, and Sinochem uh, nor any other company has come forward. Um, and it, you're really starting to see uh, that in the Ponash Corp share price right now. Um, it's 
becoming apparent in the market that this is, after all, um, that Parash Corp is the subject of a bid, not a bidding war. And, and have anybody, I mean, who, have they, who has Sinochem been talking to just in terms of, um, you know, trying to team up with, with possible partners? I mean, Javier, if you want to come in here, have they sort of talked to any sort of the commodities houses or well, they have been the talking, Russians? Yeah. They have been talking to, to pension funds in, in Canada, trying to get a, a Canadian face for the bid. They have been also looking to support from other sovereign wealth funds, including Temasek of, of Singapore. Uh, obviously, they are in talks internally in, in, in China, whether they could just bring financing from uh, state-owned banks or even for the Chinese Investment Corporation. And the latest, they hold conversations with Dural Kali of Russia that is also a major producer of potash in the market, trying to put also uh, a, a technical face, another potash producer into the consortium. That that those thoughts collapse too. So so far, they have not been able to, to put together a consortium. And still, Sinochem, as Will was suggesting, it could just get financing by, by Beijing. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, they have more more than enough money just to put on the table. But whether they are going to go for it or not, that's just a big question at the moment. Yeah. Although people do tend to forget in some ways that uh, just how huge a sum, $40 billion in cash is. Um, I think in some ways... People's judgment tends to leave them when they think Chinese state-owned enterprise and it's just sort of funny money to, you know, China Inc. And then it'll mm. just sort of print up $50 billion. Um, it, some people in the market are saying if if it did have a blank check, it would have come forward by now. I mean, clearly, reading between the lines, it's been struggling um, in its preliminary round of talks around the world to find anyone. Um, so... And, and do we think, does BHP have to raise its offer at all to get any sort of approval from Potash? I mean, I just wondered how much backing does the Potash management have from its own investors for having rejected this bid at this price? Well, BHP has to do nothing. Uh, as long as there is no external friction, um, it's probably sitting back and smiling right now at uh, sort of the, the apparent flailings of, of any possible competitor Um Yes, I mean, if you look at Canadian at a history of successful foreign um, takeovers of Canadian mining companies in the past five years, uh, the bid has always been sweetened. Then again, those bids were all competitive. Um, uh, the, the consensus, if you will, is that to get this over the line, uh, BHP will have to raise it. Uh, the question is just by how much and and the degree to which there's no real credible counter bid, I suppose that's that it has to will feel less pressure to raise it right and what's the timing on this in terms of the bid the bid timetable well let's see the original timeline uh for shareholders to accept the bid was October, and I believe that's now been pushed back to November. I mean the way these things work it, it'll be pushed back indefinitely mm-hmm. um as long as it takes mm-hmm. um the, the, so in a way, I mean, this is the biggest deal in the world right now, but in a way, it's sort of um, disappointing everyone who wants headlines because week to week, uh, nothing concrete has happened uh, anywhere near as important as BHP's $130 in-share cash offer on uh, October, uh, August 16th. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone's still waiting for some sort of uh, counter move that's anywhere near as concrete. Right, well, we'll see what happens. I think Marius Scopus is quite a wily dealmaker, the head of BHP Billiton, <laughs> yeah. so I'm sure he might have something else up his sleeves. Um, no, thank you very much for that. That's all we have time for today. And, and all that's left for me is to thank my guests in the studio, Will McNamara and Javier Blas, Sheila McNulty in Houston, and, of course, Dr. Joseph Mason in Louisiana. Energy Weekly was produced by Rob Minto. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.